you're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Jim Shooter, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hi there, welcome back to the Epic Marvel Podcast. I am your host, Curtis Findlay. And I am your X-Factor host, Jared Abrahamson. And we are going to be talking about X-Factor Volume 1, starting right from the beginning of X-Factor. This is 1986. And Jared, can you tell us what is found in this epic collection? This collection contains X-Factors number 1 through 9, plus the their first annual, also, Avengers 263, uh, Fantastic Four 286, Iron Man Annual number 8, and Spider-Man number 282, plus a couple of stories from Classic X-Men number 8 and Classic X-Men number 43. Well, a lot of stuff in that one. <laughs> yeah, when you read off that list, it seems sort of like a, a grab bag. Um, but they all have a, a pretty good purpose in this collection, so I, I'm pretty happy with uh, with the way that this has all turned out. Um, now, I went into this mm-hmm. expecting the worst because it has a <laughs> it has a history and a reputation of not being great. And when I went to try and get some interviews for this for this uh, volume. Everybody that I asked either didn't reply to me or said, no, I really don't want to talk about that period of my career. So it's like, wow, this it, what's wrong with this this book here? So um, that's something we're going to discuss throughout is, is it really as bad as people say it is? Um, what are the issues? Why is it that way? And uh, um, and because we didn't get any interviews, uh, these, these all of these creators have talked about this period at some point. So... We are able to find some um, some articles, some interviews where they actually speak. So it won't be them telling us a story, but I will read what they have had to say in the past. Excellent. Just before we start, uh, I know you just told me before we started here that you bought this collection digitally. Yes. Are there pros and cons to buying digital epic collections rather than the physical ones? Well, I, I guess the, the biggest pro, I mean... Let me start off by saying the the reason I bought it digitally is because I have, um, I've been trying to collect every issue of X Factor, uh, and you know I, I and and planning to get them bound, you know. Oh, cool. The hardback. So this would be a pretty big double dip for you then. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, that's why I didn't didn't get that, and I I am missing a couple issues from this this collection, but. You know, starting X Factor issue, uh, I think twenty five or so. I have everything to the end. So nice. But anyways, yeah. So when you read this epic collection, did you pull out your old issues, or did you just read the whole thing digitally? Uh, I just read this one digitally. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I, I I guess I could pull out my issues and compare, but I <laughs> I didn't get a chance to do that beforehand. 
Yeah, when I was reading through Fantastic Four, if I had the issue, I'd pull it out. Um, just because mm -hmm. I like the experience of reading an actual, you know, an, a comic from the 60s, holding it in my hand and turning the pages and whatever. Um, it, it's so right, different, right. just the, my attitude reading it is so different than when it's, you know, nice glossy pages or whatever, big thick book. Um, it's a different experience. So, but uh, yeah, I mean, if you've got them packed away in your boxes in your garage or, or a closet somewhere, then it's kind of a pain to go dig them out. Right. <laughs> Okay, so what are some of the things we need to know about this volume, about the things that have come up before this volume in order to properly enjoy X-Factor Volume 1, Genesis and Apocalypse? Uh, there is quite a lot, actually. <laughs> yes. <There's, laughs> uh, yeah, this has a lot of of baggage from the, the X-Men series. Um, uh, specifically in regards to uh, Phoenix or Jean Grey. Yeah. Before this collection, she had been dead for uh, three or four years or so, something like that. And she, you know, in the, the classic, the Dark Phoenix saga, which we'll right. get to when we get to the <laughs> X-Men mm -hmm. um, series, but... Um, well, why don't we leave? Yeah, there's so much to do with Jean. Let's let's leave her right. for last. Can you bring sure. <laughs> us up to speed on some of the other X-Men characters? Okay. Well, so X-Factor reunites the original five X-Men, Cyclops, Beast, Angel, Iceman, and Jean. Beast, Angel, and Iceman were, uh, right before this, they were part of the Defenders team. And uh, I, th I think... The Defenders had been canceled shortly before this series started, and I think in the last few issues of that, every other member of the Defenders, other than those three, were all killed. Yeah. <laughs> I could be wrong on that, but something, something like that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and then with uh, with Cyclops, he had been with the the X Men uh, for for that whole time. Uh, he after Gene died. He uh, met a woman named Madeline Pryor, who looks quite a bit like Jean. He fell in love with her. Mm -hmm. They got married, and uh, they had a baby. <laughs> right. Who was actually born in, I think, X-Men 201, which I believe came out the same month as X-Factor number one. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, because yeah, the baby's an infant in this book. Right. Also with with that with with the X-Men, Professor X had uh been ill and he was taken up to space by the the Shi'ar Empire. Uh and Magneto becomes like the head of the X-Men. He right. takes Professor X's place. Cyclops doesn't like that. He had a fight with uh with Storm. And then I guess he lost, and then he comes back to, he he goes off to live with his wife and child in Alaska, and that's where we pick up with him. Yeah, that's pretty much all I had as well. Uh, you would need to also know a little bit about the Morlocks uh, to go into this one. They're oh, okay, the group okay. of underground um, underground mutants who are underground because their physical appearance they have been mutated. Uh, to the point where they can't be seen in public, otherwise they cause 
um, chaos wherever they go with just the people who are scared of them and stuff. So they've gone into hiding. And let's see, is Storm the leader of the Morlocks by this point? I don't remember. I yeah, I, th- I think she is. But she doesn't. She does. You don't see that in the in the comic. Right, right. Storm does not appear in this collection. Yeah. Uh, so they're they're known to all of the characters, though. Um, right. They they have appeared briefly. So, and I think that might be all we need to know. Um, the Fantastic Four are living with the Avengers right yeah. now um, because their building has collapsed, and so they needed a new base of operations. So they're with the Avengers, and. Um, yeah, there's you know there's a whole bunch of history of, to do with like warlock and stuff, but we'll get into that in the Avengers issue, and um, I think that's probably all we really need to know, other than Gene. We have a listener comment on Facebook. I asked anybody if they had anything to say about X-Factor, and Adam Chapman has some questions for us. He says, what are your thoughts on how Scott Summers was brought back into the fold after Uncanny X-Men 201? Much has been made over the years on how Scott's behavior and decision to abandon his wife and son damaged the character. Do you think that there was a more elegant solution than the one that was used in the book, which is not much of one? Yeah, I, I, I think I totally agree that this was sort of a, you know, maybe saying character assassination is a little bit too much, but it's, he, he does seem to leave his wife and newborn son very easily. (laughs) And yeah. And then they, they don't really, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think either one appear again in the collection. No. You know, after, yeah, uh, number one. But it seems like that could have been handled differently, better, you know, that makes, you know, the, the, there would totally be drama, I guess, you know, uh, Gene meeting the woman who sort of took her place in a way. Right. But, yeah, but I, I think they could have done something to where it, it doesn't make Scott sort of the the bad guy, <laughs> well, know, which I, I yeah. totally think he is in that situation. Yeah. The unfortunate part is any way you slice it, if he's going to go back to Gene, he's the bad guy. Cause he's up and leaving his wife and his child. There's no getting around that. Right. There's, I mean, right, that's, that's true. the only thing yeah. that could happen is Madeline dies. So that Scott's a widow and then he can bring yeah. his child over to and be with Gene or something like that. Like, I guess that could have happened. Uh, but that didn't and yeah but it it kind of does but like 40 issues later yeah 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 exactly (laughs) it's not uh that's not something that happened right now i mean we had to they they had had to go through a whole bunch of stuff first um but it it did play for some interesting drama in this issue that's for sure i Mm. and it's really sort of the start of his downward spiral that really killed him just a few years ago like from here we see it's a different Scott than any Scott that we've really seen before this. It's it's an he's not being the same Boy Scout altruistic Scott Summers as we've seen in the early pages of X Men or even before this X Factor book. Him leaving yeah. his wife and child starts something that keeps on snowballing all through the next twenty years of comics history 
to the point where right. he does become the villain. He does become yeah. a, 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 a quite a twisted character. Basically, doesn't he sort of become like Magneto in a way? Pretty much. You yeah. know, leading the <laughs> bad guys, which, you know, is really interesting but it yep. it does start here <laughs> it does you know? it all begins with with this and i wonder that if gene had not come back and he had stayed with madeline i wonder if the story would have gone in a completely different direction yeah so yeah interesting comment so. <laughs> um adam also asks what do you think of the decision to resurrect gene gray in the pages of fantastic four and avengers instead of uncanny x-men that's uh resurrecting her in, in uncanny would would be the the obvious choice i guess but i think that has to do more with the uh office politics and uh chris claremont didn't want to have anything to do with it yeah <laughs> so you know doing it in avengers and fantastic 4 i mean maybe those wise doing that to sort of bring more people from from those popular books to read this this new one i think that was definitely part of it yep for sure why not uh, make the lead up to this new x-factor book into their their better selling titles absolutely right Uh, yeah and also it was roger stern and john byrne who were spearheading this idea of bringing gene back so of course they're going to put it in in their book they're not going to hand yeah. over their ideas to other writers to use because why would you give up such a such a gold mine like that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, also, I think that uh, if you had resurrected Jean in the pages of Uncanny X-Men, would she be more tied to staying in Uncanny X-Men and not making the jump over to X-Factor? Would Chris have yeah. tried to keep her for himself? I bet, I, I bet he I, would. Yeah, but 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 then also shortly before this happened, they uh, Chris Claremont uh, introduced uh, uh, Rachel Gray, right. who's the the maybe child of of Scott and Jean from the future, <laughs> right? Which is <laughs> its own kind of weirdness, but yeah, yeah, and that that story doesn't really get played out for a couple years from now, right? Okay. Uh, we also have a Twitter poll. I asked the question, who's your favorite member of the original X Factor? And I have to I had to apologize. I couldn't fit in Iceman because Twitter only lets me have four options in a poll. So I, he was the guy I left off uh, for no reason, really. I, I just had to leave someone off. So I put in Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Beast, and Angel. And... I got one comment on Twitter and one comment on Facebook saying that if Iceman were there, they would have voted for Iceman. So at the bottom of the list, Angel got 0% of the votes. So Iceman actually did better than Angel. (laughs) Marvel Girl got 9% of the votes. Beast got 36% of the the votes. And Cyclops got 55% of the votes. Yeah. Who's, Who's your pick? Uh, my, my pick was, uh, Beast and I, I voted. <laughs> yeah. Um, my, my pick was Beast as well. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in this collection. Right. <laughs> it, it's interesting that Cyclops, you know, was number one. Yeah. Since, uh, this is not a good 
time for him. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a few interview clips or interview uh, segments. Well, okay. So when when Jean died, it was sort of an editorial mandate that she can't come back unless she was totally cleared of uh, the horrible stuff she did. Right, because she's know, a mass murderer. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. That sort of thing. So when uh, Bob Layton and uh, Jackson Geis pitched X Factor. Uh, as reuniting the original X-Men, they, they didn't think they would be bringing back Gene. Uh, so their original idea was to have, um, uh, Dazzler as the, the female, right. You know, member of the team. Uh, how different a story that would have been. It would have completely changed the, the, the focus of the book. I think if Gene wasn't the fifth member. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and I, I think there was, uh, wasn't there a mini series that was, you know, a year or two before this, that was uh, Beauty and the Beast, and it was like a love story between Dazzler right. and Beast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that would have when when Beast was on the Defenders, I think that's when that took place. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, here's a clip from Comics Interview Number Twenty Eight of Jackson Geist talking about X Factor. Well, X Factor really came about in kind of a strange fashion. It was an idea that Bob Layton and I pitched to Jim Shooter about putting together a title, but neither one of us was really volunteering to work on it. It was just an idea that sparked in our heads. We were staying at Jim's place in New York one weekend, and we were looking through the make-readies of that month's issue of Marvel. Jim was away, and we were discussing the various titles and everything. Defenders and X-Men were two of the titles. We looked at them and got to talking about here were these great old X-Men characters, the original X-Men, and not to belittle the work anyone was doing on Defenders, but we really felt like they should be in a title of their own. We both had an extreme fondness for the original X-Men. We talked to, and then later on in the interview, he says, we talked to Mike Carlin and he agreed to be editor of X-Factor. As a matter of fact, he came up with the name. He went to lunch and came back and said, we'll call it X-Factor. And then uh, I have another segment from uh, Dolman Magazine. This is Bob Layton talking. And he says, I wasn't much of a fan of the new X-Men. To me, the Beast, Marvel Girl, Iceman, the Angel, and Cyclops were the real X-Men. So I pitched a proposal to bring back all of the originals. It was an exciting assignment for me being at the helm of that book, writing and inking it, and being able to collaborate with my good friend and super talented Butch Geis. Didn't suck either. Uh, To be fair, there were many hands involved in its evolution after I pitched the initial concept. However, when I brought back the original X-Men with the newly resurrected Jean Grey, it became a lightning rod for inter-office politics. Jean Grey's resurrection opened up a vicious can of worms. In the initial premise that Jackson Geis and I submitted, Jean Grey was not part of the group, it was the Dazzler. But Kurt Busick and John Byrne came up with a way to revive her, and of course, why would I refuse to use her? But from that point on, the rest of the story devolves into an inter-office bitch fest. Uh, that didn't go smoothly from Boo. 
my editor Mike Carlin was wrongly fired off the series after the first issue. The editor-in-chief insisted on having a third of the first issue rewritten and redrawn, and not for the better in my opinion, and we'll talk about more of that when we get to that issue. Controversy and problems continued from issue to issue until I simply had enough. Wow. Um, And then one more thing before we move on here is this is John Byrne from his website, burnrobotics.com. He's got a fantastic frequently asked questions section on his website that uh, he goes into detail about, about a bunch of stuff. And he says, the sequence went something like this. After the Phoenix Saga and long before it developed this retroactive titling the Phoenix Saga, Chris would simply not let go. Not an issue of X-Men past without some reference to Phoenix. And sideways from this, an annoying little eager beaver fanboy named Kurt Busick had come up with the idea that Phoenix was not, in fact, Gene, but a precise duplicate, a duplicate created by the Phoenix Force as a quote-unquote housing for itself, and the real Gene was in suspended animation at the bottom of Jamaica Bay, where the shuttle crashed. When Leighton came up with the idea for X-Factor, I was reminded of this notion and suggested it would be a way to put Gene back into the group. Shooter agreed, and Roger Stern and I concocted a two-part crossover between the Avengers and Fantastic Four to accomplish just this end. Um, And then he goes on, It was at that time that I announced to Marvel through a letter to boss Mike Hobson, Shooter, and the FF editor Mike Carlin, uh, that I had accepted the Superman assignment at DC. The two mics wished me luck, which is what you would expect from professionals. And Shooter's response was to suddenly realize that the FF story he had approved at every step from plot to pencils to script, after all, he had to have his fingers in this very important pie, was horribly flawed, and that a good third of it had to be redrawn by Jackson Geis and rewritten by Chris Claremont. In the epic collection, there is... An article from Kurt Busick as well. This is, and it's uh, taken from the X Men Phoenix, Rise, Phoenix Rising trade paperback. He, this is Kurt Busick talking. Three years later, I'd broken into the business. I was writing Power Man and Iron Fist, my first regular assignment at the time, and I was attending one of my first comic conventions as a pro. It was in Ithaca, New York. Uh, which meant I got to hang out with Roger Stern, a superb a superb craftsman and all-around affable guy. Our chat turned to the X-Men, and at one point Roger commented that he'd like to see Jean Grey return, but there was no way to do it without getting around Shooter's ruling on the matter. Sure there is, I said, snot-nosed young whippersnapper that I was. I outlined the idea that I'd come up with, and Roger liked it. Again, there was no thought of actually using it. It was just more comics conversation, and it ended there. Or so, once again, I thought. It was two years later or so that I was working as the assistant editor on Marvel Age when Bob Layton breezed up to me in Marvel's bullpen and said, Hey, I hear you're the guy I have to thank for having Gene back. Huh? I responded brightly, having no idea what he was talking about. It seems that in the intervening time, Roger had mentioned the idea to his pal John Byrne, and John had liked it too. And when word got out that Bob would be doing a new series called X-Factor, reuniting the four surviving original X-Men, John called Bob and said, you know, I have a way I have a way you could have Gene on the team too. So Bob ran the idea past Jim Shooter, and Jim okayed it, and Roger got to show Gene being found in Avengers, John got to revive her in Fantastic Four, and Bob got to reunite the original X-Men in X-Factor number one. Me, I got paid for the idea. I got a credit line in in Fantastic Four, even if my name was misspelled. 
Um, and I got to edit the issue of Marvel Age that promoted the whole thing. And that issue of Marvel Age is collected in this epic collection as well. So there you go. There's uh, some words from the creators, a lot of behind-the-scenes politics. Right. <laughs> yeah. Which would totally continue. <laughs> oh, yes. Why don't we start at the beginning and go right into Avengers number 263. This issue is called What Lurks Below, and in this issue, the Avengers are called to investigate a plane crash, but discover a cocoon at the bottom of the ocean. And they think the cocoon came from uh, from the ship that crashed, especially because of uh, the, the ship or the, the, the plane that crashed was, I guess, owned by the Enclave, who is the team of scientists who created Adam Warlock in Fantastic Four 66 and 67. Um, but, uh, and, and the cocoon has that very distinct look to the same cocoon that, that Warlock had in, the, in that issue as well. Yeah, and isn't there, there's a, a reference in there, or it might be in uh, the Fantastic Four issue, where they they show a flashback, like just a one-panel flashback to the Adam Warlock, and then right. also another, uh, like the, the her version of, of right, Adam yeah. Warlock. That's yeah. right. But, yeah, they do try to make that connection, but it turns out that the pod is its own thing. It's not actually. It doesn't actually have anything to do with, with Enclave at all. Yeah, I, I felt there was a couple of panels in here where the, the cocoon, looked to me more like just a an old mattress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, very true. Uh, there are a couple of things I wanted to note here. One is on page fifteen. Uh, there is one page, it's the Melter, and he gets shot and dies and then the guy says justice is served and uh it it uh it, it's just here in the middle of the issue but i i think it's worth noting that this is a storyline that's eventually told in the captain america epic collection called justice is served um in fact it's nothing gets uh nothing gets resolved or even continued from that one page that we see in this Avengers issue in the pages of Avengers. It's all in Captain America. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was going to bring that up that I thought it was interesting that, uh, Roger Stern was writing an issue, uh, to set up things in two or really three different series that weren't Avengers. <laughs> right. Um, this issue was okay. I like Roger Stern's writing, but at the, at the very end, and I don't know, maybe he did it out of necessity because of the, the artwork. Uh, I just felt like um, it's just too bad they had to, to narrate. Like, there's a lot of narration in the last page of this issue. And the narration has to tell yeah. us that it's Jean Grey. Uh, I think that readers probably could have clued in by if they had... It's not even a real Jean Grey-looking face that we see in the pod if they had yeah, made her hair really. a little bit more curly or something like that and um yeah. a bit more red like fire red rather than the orange just her saying scott whispering that and leaving it silent we could have got it 
And that's what I like about the mm-hmm. comics medium is that we can infer from the pictures a lot of the times. But uh, so I don't think that this dialogue was necessary. Uh, ex- but maybe it was because the picture is not obvious. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It's it, it does get a little wordy. You want to take us on to the next one? The issue is Fantastic Four, uh, number 286. And basically the what happens is the Fantastic Four return to the Avengers mansion because they were off doing whatever it was in the previous issue. Um, and, to, and they unlock the cocoon. And inside they find Jean Grey, who is alive. And the rest of the issue is basically a big info dump to explain how Jean Grey can possibly be alive since, since she died, I guess, uh, the, the issue that she died in was released, uh, about six years before this one. Info dump is a great word for this issue, man. It is, it is completely an info dump. And I think it's yeah. necessary <laughs> because especially in this day and age, there's no, there's no Wikipedia, there's no internet to find this kind of stuff out so they had to convey a lot of that information here Mm -hmm. but this is a big one this is a an important issue not just because it brought gene gray back but because it caused john byrne to leave the title and uh, to leave fantastic four and and marvel as well i think and it's it's just uh it's really neat to see this part of history and it'll be even more neat to see it in the context of whenever that fantastic four epic collection comes out yeah and and john byrne is not even uh credited it just says you know who <laughs> right yeah yeah he didn't even want his name on the book like that's that just speaks so much <laughs> so big there um, oh yeah absolutely yeah and it's like i i like the explanation but i don't like the way it was told like we said there's the a bunch of stuff was rewritten, redrawn by Chris Claremont and Jackson Geis in this issue. And you can kind of see that because the artwork jumps from um, being John Byrne brilliance to what looks like a pretty big rush job and a piecemeal piecemeal thing. Like some of the panels are half John Byrne and half other people because they wanted to like keep some of the, some of the backgrounds and such. So, right. (laughs) Um, What's really interesting is that in this epic collection, at the back, some of the bonus pe- features are actual original art of these pages that show what the original John Byrne drawings looked like and what the original dialogue was. And that's really cool. There's there's just some fantastic stuff. Uh, it's a really neat piece of history to see um, how exactly John Byrne had laid it out and then how... Jim Shooter wanted it changed. Which uh, which way do you think is better? I think I like yeah. the way that it was redone a little bit better because when the Phoenix makes this manifestation of herself and turns herself into Jean Grey, essentially, it still retains sort of Jean Grey's humanity. Where in John mm-hmm. Byrne's version, um, we have the Phoenix is already malicious it's already like it's taking over and then it purposely disguises itself as Jean in order to kind of fool everybody. Um, so when you get, when you think about the history of that 
and you go back to the Dark Phoenix saga when Dark Phoenix really takes over and Jean becomes mad and um, and and dest- destroying planets and stuff, and then then decides to commit suicide in order to stop the Phoenix Force or to stop itself. It makes more sense to have the Phoenix start off with Jean's humanity, so that you can still see that Jean, the person, has control has some control in there. Otherwise, would it make sense that it, the Phoenix would kill herself in the end? Right, right. Yeah, it's a, it it uh, sort of shows more of a gradual progression, you know, that the original story kind of was. Yeah, as opposed to, you know evil at the the get-go which isn't really how things went yeah too so yeah so i just recently read the iron fist epic collection and i talked about that uh we had an episode about that recently and in that one misty knight shares an apartment with gene gray and in that epic collection uh gene gray has just come out of the the plane crash she's got a broken leg she's healing but now I know that that wasn't actually Jean Grey. That was the Phoenix. And it, right. changed, it changes my perspective on everything, going back to those issues now and reading them, knowing knowing that that was the case. Okay, let's move on to X-Factor number one. This one's titled Third Genesis. And it's called Third Genesis because um, Giant Size X-Men number one was called Second Genesis. And so this is just kind of continuing on that theme. And uh, just before we get into the issue, I have a quote from Jackson Geis. This is from an article, Comic Book Legends Revealed, number 204, from CBR.com. And Jackson Geis says, The first issue was double-sized. We put it together under the guiding hand of Mike Carlin, and the first issue was finished and submitted for final approval to Jim Shooter, who, for reasons he would have to explain himself, decided the entire issue was unacceptable and would need to be redone from scratch, with only two to three weeks remaining before the printer's deadline. This is a double size issue. Uh, those were uh, those were a dark few hours, as I recall. Bob and I pleaded that there wasn't enough time to completely rework an entire double size issue, but Jim was adamant and told us that we were not. Uh, if we were not up to it, up to the task, he would bring in people who were capable of doing so. It was our choice. I holed up in my hotel room and drew like crazy, day and night, sitting on the floor, hunched over a coffee table, which, which served as my drafting table. Bob often sitting a few feet away, scripting or inking. Inker Joe Rubenstein was, was shanghaied into our merry band of misfits to help speed up the work. And during the course of the next few mad weeks, a hurricane churned up the eastern seaboard and, deemed, and seemed determined to drive straight into New York Harbor for dramatic effect. Overnight, Manhattan Island and apparently the entire hotel staff evacuated the city. The last surreal act before departure, departure was the hotel concierge handing me a roll of masking tape and requesting I tape off the windows in my room and wishing me luck. Well, the hurricane thankfully made an unexpected turn during the night and drove ashore to the south, uh, with the next day dawning bright and clear like a scene from the movie The Omega Man. 
For several hours we could ill afford to lose, Bob and I wandered the des deserted streets of downtown New York looking for any open deli or restaurant in order to eat. It was a very unique experience. Long story short, we did somehow manage to completely redo the first issue. Bob, Joe, and I gang-inked the last of the pages while they were hurriedly being colored in the bullpen right up to the final hours of the deadline. The book went to the printer, and the rest is history. Yeah, that is such a crazy story. <laughs> it's so crazy. And, like, there's a hurricane in the middle of it. <laughs> right. It's, like, yeah. off inter-office politics and stuff, and nature It wants, doesn't want this book done either. So, anyway, yeah. <laughs> so the, the plot, the new redone plot of what we now know as X-Factor number one, after discovering the return of Jean Grey, Warren gets the band back together under the guise of a mutant deterrent agency that they call X-Factor. And so, first of all, I want to say that I actually like this premise of being mutant hunters and posing as a human group that is out to stop mutants and people can call in because they don't have access to something like Cerebro. So this is their way of finding new mutants and helping them yeah. and saving them and teaching them to use their powers. And it's different from the other X books. So I thought that that was nice. It was a nice way to change it up a little bit. And mm -hmm. then also the fact that they don their, they call them their mutant costumes uh, in order to, uh, to, to be able to use their powers in public as well. Uh, so that sort of dichotomy between the human costume and the mutant costume is kind of neat to see as well. Well, I, I don't really think that, I mean, that, that premise is, uh, new and different, but I don't think it entirely works for me. Um, basically, I, I I think well, I guess it might have to do more so with how they go about it because they're mutant hunters, and it, I think it creates more, you know, hate and fear on the mutants. Right, which is something they actually question about their own their own company in the book mm -hmm. because they realize that they are adding to the the hysteria uh, in the public eye so and it's just um in doing so it's able they're able to bring up those kind of conversations and bring up the those points of of being mutants and that kind of thing too should it last forever i don't know how long this whole mutant hunter thing lasts in x factor can you do you know how, when do they drop that whole thing it's uh it's been a long time since I've read, you know, beyond this collection. So uh, I could be wrong, but I, I want to say it's roundabout issue like twenty-five. You know, when they do the whole um, uh, was it the fall of the mutants storyline? Oh, okay. I, I yeah, yeah I, I think they become like heroes at that point, and you know, the the city. Uh, so they save New York or whatever, and and they 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 basically come out as heroes. Okay. And, well, yeah, that's and not too much they... longer then, I guess. That's uh... right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and it it also has to do with uh, the the character Cameron Hodge, who's introduced in in this issue. Yeah. Uh, well, let, let's not give any spoilers away there. Uh, yeah. For that, people I, who haven't. <laughs> Right, I, I don't want to. I don't want to go beyond that, but it has to do with with him. Okay, things start <laughs> also, falling apart. So. Okay, 
Gotcha. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so here's the issue where Scott just walks out on Madeline and his child. And he just does because he's angry and he leaves in a fit of... Or no, he leaves because he gets the phone call from Gene. About about Gene, I mean. And mm-hmm. uh, And I can understand doing that. What I can't understand is not going back. Right. And what I also don't understand is that Beast and Angel encourage Scott in this issue to forget about Madeline. And like, Gene's back, Gene's back. It's all of this kind of stuff. But it's like, if I were Scott's friend at that point, I would probably be trying to convince him to save his marriage, even though his former girlfriend and first love is back. Like, that still, it still seems like a bad move. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I didn't really buy buy them doing that, you know. That whole storyline, I mean, it just feels a little, I guess, icky. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of yeah, weird, but yeah, it it may seem out of character, um, but you know, I think that's maybe that's part of the whole rewriting the first issue that that got a little rushed or not told the way they wanted it to. Yeah. This is also the first appearance of, uh, you said Cameron Hodge already, and also mm-hmm. Rusty Collins. Rusty Collins first appears here, and he has uh, his mutant power manifests, and he burns somebody and gets sent to jail. And he, he is an interesting character. Um, I like that he is afraid of himself, afraid of what he can do, um, and that he needs the encouragement of the others. And it's a nice progression through these nine issues of him realizing his abilities and, and gaining confidence in himself. Yeah, he, I think he does have, he probably has the best arc out of any of the characters. Yeah. In this I, collection. I, I would yeah. say so too. And partly I think maybe that's because he's a brand new character. So he's starting from scratch. We don't know anything about him. He doesn't have a predetermined character or anything like that. So, so, Bob Layton and Jackson Geis, who are, they basically plot everything together. They're able to, to, to present a really natural character arc. And I liked it. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the artwork, you, you can kind of tell it, it, it's rushed, especially if some of the faces look a little just off, you know, but I, I guess I don't blame them for that because they had to do it during a hurricane. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, and there's just there's a lot of um a lot of big panels and a lot of panels that have minimal backgrounds in them. And it, if you go later mm-hmm. on into the book, uh Jackson Geis is actually great. Um and oh, the, yeah. some of the later issues in this collection are just uh th- they're really great. They're really great. And you can see the difference between him uh rushing through things and him actually having the time to put together something amazing. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I do really enjoy his work on, on this, and then later on, like the Flash and other stuff that he does. But I, I think he's a really great artist. But this issue is not his best. <laughs> well, the the final uh, page of the issue, or the final panel specifically, is, uh, you know, Madeline sitting in the dark alone staring at the picture of of Scott and it's I don't know it's kind of heartbreaking in a way 
Yeah, I thought yeah. that was like, that was a, a good moment, a good way to end the first mm -hmm. issue. It's like the, the you should be happy. The gang's all together. Everyone's back. X and, he, and Warren says X Factor is here to stay. But right. then there's just like you're forgetting about the fallout of of bringing the band back together again. It's the at the at the risk of this poor woman and her child. And I mean, going back, knowing the evil that Madeline eventually becomes, it's like I don't feel sorry for her as much. But if you forget about about all that, she's not at this point right now. It's like, yeah, that's that's really sad. Right, and and the the what happens with her later is sort of you know it's a it's a retcon basically and yeah yeah because she was when she was introduced she was just supposed to be you know a human woman who happened to look a little bit like gene <laughs> right Let's see. all right x factor number two the issue starts off uh you know, they check in with the ongoing drama of Jean readjusting to her life and Scott not telling her about his his uh, his life and, you know, which becomes a, a major storyline throughout these issues. Um, but the the main story of the issue is uh, with Hank, Beast and Bobby Iceman, they're hanging out with uh, Beast old old flame vera they're attacked and beast is kidnapped by a guy named tower and then the other members track uh track beast or i guess they're they're given a uh you know they're called in by the the guy who kidnapped beast or hired tower to kidnap beast uh and they go to atlanta and they track him down and then it's to be continued. <laughs> so I have been a big fan of Generation X, the comic, when it was out in the uh -huh. 90s. And um, in there, one of the reoccurring characters, the kind of the side characters, is Artie Maddox. And I've never read this issue. So I had no idea of Artie's connection to any of this. But it turns out that Artie's dad is Dr. Carl Maddox, who in this issue is the one who takes away the beast's blue fur. But it, it, what happened several years ago in Amazing Adventures number, nine, uh, number 11 is he's the one who assisted in the experiments that turned him into the blue furry beast in the first place. And yeah. now, now he's got a son who is, who is uh, um, mutated to a very ugly point and he wants to try and cure him. And so that was kind of neat. I, I was happy to see that uh, the beginning of uh, of Artie's journey, and uh, mm -hmm. to learn a little bit about his powers and and what he f what he was like when he first appeared. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I and, and I, I really liked Artie too. He's such a he's such a different character, you know, <laughs> to to yeah. what's normal. Yeah. Yeah, and I like it because he's so sweet and innocent and sincere but behind mm -hmm. this really ugly face. Yeah. And um, depending on the artist, Artie can actually look pretty adorable. Um, oh, absolutely. But uh, yeah, but yeah it's, it's, it's neat to see him here in this one. Mm -hmm. So the first page 
of this one, the first two pages, right after the, the cover, you open up here, page 102 and 103, and right away you can see, wow, this artwork is already way better than what we saw in the last issue. Just oh, yeah. The, the pictures of Gene yeah. here, the, it's just uh, really fantastic. So I'm glad that uh, that they didn't have to redo every issue that came out after this. And yeah, Tower. Let's talk about <laughs> yeah. Ta let's talk about Tower a little bit. Um, he's the first in a string of new characters that I think is supposed to make up X Factor's Rogues Gallery. Right. But he's really kind of just lame. He just he grows and he <laughs> shrinks, and he's just a bully in a very nondescript generic purple outfit. Um, yeah, he doesn't really stand out to me as being anything particularly special he's in the next you know three or four issues or whatever but uh i don't think he ever appears again after that i could be wrong but uh well yeah. do you do you happen to know i think he appeared recently what was the storyline where a whole bunch of dead people were coming back from the dead oh um necrotia yeah that... yeah yeah that's the one necrotia yeah. he he popped okay. up in that he's, story. He's part of that, okay. Um, but because he was dead, <laughs> and then he he died again. So it's like, he, um, yeah, I think sometimes they bring him back just so that they can keep the copyright going. Sure, yeah, they they need an an extra face and a crowd of yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, he hasn't really made an impact, and you know, rightly so. There are a million uh, characters who can grow really large. And this guy's mm -hmm. not the best of them. Yeah, yeah, he he is pretty bland. <laughs> X Factor number three. The title is Regression Obsession. And in this one, X Factor tracks down the Beast because he's being held in an underground base run by Dr. Maddox. This is the issue where he loses all of his fur. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a big fight and everything, of course, because there always has to be. And in this oh, one, absolutely. we see a little bit more of Artie's powers. I didn't realize this because he never uses these in Generation X or any of the sort of modern issues. But um, his mind, his mental link power and his mind lock power. Uh, so mental link, he can, if he's linked with somebody, even if that person is way off on the other side of the city, he can still see what they're up to and, and project visions of what they're up to. Mm-hmm. And the the mind lock he can he can lock down the, a person's brain so that they so that they can't do anything and like that's that's pretty powerful. Yeah, I also don't remember him doing that the the mind lock thing again. Maybe he does, but <laughs> yeah, and that that's a crazy a crazy power for a you know just a little kid yeah, to have. Definitely. With, with with this, you know, Beast losing his fur, the tidbit you read earlier about uh, Leighton not liking the new X-Men and all that, I, yeah. I, I felt this was another return to the 60s status quo, you know? Right, yeah, yeah, I didn't think about that, but you're right, it is. Yeah, because, uh, and, and actually, you know, me uh, reading this series, I came in much later uh, and and going through back issues, I f seeing Beast without his fur, I thought he 
first, you know, changed. It was later in this series when he he becomes, you know, fuzzy and blue. I thought that was the first time or, you know, when that happened. I didn't realize he went back. <laughs> right. Like, okay. Yeah. yeah. But. Hmm. So this has some fun moments in it. Um Gene trying to recruit Tower and it not working. It's like their first mutant that they come across. Oh, I guess Rusty is their first one. But then this guy comes along and it doesn't work. He, it doesn't go the way they want it to. And another fun moment is when Gene, um, Gene tells Bobby she doesn't want him leaving ice around. It's like that's something that I always wonder. Is like he, he creates these huge ice things and then it just sits there and melts causing (laughs) who knows what kind of damage and destruction and and no one ever talks about that but several times throughout this book they all they talk about the ramifications of Iceman actually leaving these ice structures or casually shooting ice all over the place like it's actually pretty destructive power (laughs) yeah yeah you wouldn't really think about that really but it it totally is you know I mean how many how many bills do you think he gets for you know to clean up the carpet or you know mold removal or whatever <laughs> yeah. from his yeah. stuff or the tenants below is <laughs> leaking through their ceiling or whatever oh, yeah <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> the, the dr maddox uh basically giving up his his life to save his son uh i mean that was a, a good moment, but it, it was, I kind of felt, uh, his turn there, you know, cause he was the, the villain, but I guess he was just doing it to, to help his son. I don't know. I, I not sure. I, I completely buy, buy that he would, uh, give his son to this, uh, you know, the, the X factor group and then, you know, be a diversion knowing that he was going to, to die. I, I don't know if I entirely buy that. Yeah. Well, I think the love for his son was obvious because he was willing to go to the lengths of kidnapping and, and experimenting and torture on on people in order to mm-hmm. save his son and to cure him, right? Like, he was obviously willing to go to those great lengths. Yeah. And so I guess the self-sacrifice is the next step. Um, but yeah, it did seem a little a little forced there. And I think the only reason he was willing to give already over to X factors that he already knew Hank McCoy and already trusted him. Yeah. Uh, Cause they have a history in the past. I, I also liked in this issue, uh, the, I guess you could call it mummy Hank in the wheelchair for most <laughs> yeah. of the action. They're just wheeling him around. Yep. And, that was, I funny. don't know. It's kind of fun, but <laughs> yeah. So this is X factor, uh, number four, which I sort of like to call the rusty issue. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's the this the story of of this issue is uh, rusty feels like he's being pushed too far by by Gene especially, and he runs off. He runs. Comes across uh, this other new uh, mutant villain called Frenzy, 
and she wants to take him to her master, who's that's all they they say. And uh, Artie shows the team that Rusty is gone and in trouble, and then they they save him to live happily ever after. But not really. I I really like this issue, uh, you know, specifically for for Rusty's story, where you know it had the scene where he was being you know Artie just wants to be his friend and and he gets you know mad and annoyed at at, at Artie and then he runs off but then Artie saves him at the end you know I, mm-hmm. I really like that so um and and also I I kind of skipped over uh, a part where they're the team they get a, a call from a place uh, a school uh, about a, a mutant and they go there and it turns out it's not a mutant. It's just a, a kid who, who's been bullied. And, yeah. You know, I like that story was... too. Yeah. Yeah. That one is neat. It's, this is the premise. This is why I like the X factor premise uh, with the, mm-hmm. the whole mutant hunters. It's, it's basically your police procedural kind of thing. They get a call, they go to in the middle of some sort of situation and, and have to deal with it. And so we get any sort of variety of thing that comes up, uh, which that just makes a a nice story for one issue. And this one is really cool. The kid who says he's a mutant only because he wants to, he wants to make people fear him, uh, but he's not really a mutant. He's just clever, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So that's cool. Uh, Keith Pollard is the guest artist for this issue. And he mm-hmm. is he's a great artist. And it's, so it's uh, it's a little bit different than what we've seen with Jackson Geis, but consistent enough that it doesn't feel jarring to be in the middle of this collection here. Was uh, still uh, Joe Rubenstein uh, inking. So it, right. You do get some consistency yeah, think, there. Yeah. 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 Um, I think uh, this is the first appearance of... Uh, angel's backpack to hide his wings yeah it looks like a <laughs> ghostbuster <laughs> yeah exactly and it i i don't i don't know like the the way his wings are always drawn they're so huge and impressive and you know i guess the the backpack is really big but it it doesn't seem like you could fit the wings in there without I don't know. Folding them up or crumpling them or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. It but was, but you got to do what you got to do, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so this is the first appearance also of Frenzy, the second of the new X-Factor rogues gallery. Mm-hmm. She actually goes on to be one of Magneto's acolytes. So okay. she, she has yeah. a longer history than Tower. Mm-hmm. But um, other than that, she's just kind of a. Um, she's got a. She's just really strong and has an attitude. Seems like she, uh, her, design and appearances, maybe based on or inspired by uh, Grace Jones, who was yeah, the, you know the, the, View to a Kill I think was the Bond movie she was in and right <laughs> yeah yeah I yeah. can see that for sure. To start off this issue there was also a totally unnecessary fight with tower 
<laughs> yeah. And and I just felt like, oh, give me a break. I don't want Tower again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, but but then it also kind of shows that uh, in the previous two issues, it just seemed like Tower was hired by uh, the Doctor uh, Maddox, but in this, it's revealed that he's also working along with Frenzy for their mysterious master. Mm-hmm. A mystery that'll take a few more issues to figure out. Yep. yep. Okay, so just before we move on to issue number four, we have two annuals to get through. And the first one here is Iron Man Annual Number 8, which is titled When Innocence Dies. And in this one, um, a mutant boy is kidnapped and locked in Iron Man's Project Pegasus um, which Iron Man doesn't even know that they are doing like experiments on people and stuff. So uh, he gets involved trying to figure out what's going on, and X-Factor is hired to get the mutant boy out of there. So, of course, Iron Man and X-Factor have to have a little clash. And in a typical team-up fashion, they realize that they're on the same side and then work together to solve the problem. And uh, a nice... Um, Nice uh, guest appearance from a character called Guardian, who is not the same Guardian from Alpha Flight, right? It's a it's a different person. Yeah. But uh, yeah, this I I liked this issue quite a bit, and it was um it was nice to see because the last time we the last time X Factor was called in to investigate a child, that one wasn't a mutant. Um, but this right. one this one is actually a mutant, and he got in trouble at school for using his powers. Um, and there are a couple things at play here. There is, uh, first of all, his mutant power, but then he's also got sort of this, um, this like, uh, uh, split personality sort of disorder going on as well. Uh, where right, he, yeah, the, the little, little frog dude, <laughs> right? The frog, the frog is it's, he talks to him and it's this manifestation of this of his powers because his power is um, reality warping powers. He can create things and change things in reality. Uh, and so, but what he's done is he's, he's taken his own thoughts and this other personality and turned it into this frog, which at first I thought that maybe he was the only one that could see the frog. Right. Yeah. Toward the end, I think Iron Man says that he saw the frog. So yeah, it was an actual thing, but it was this, uh, it was his, his psyche, his personality coming out in this in this character. And it was making him do bad things. It was making him um, cause cause problems and, and do things that he normally wouldn't do. So I really like that aspect. I thought this was a really cool um, character and uh, mm-hmm. and just a tragic story. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh, doesn't end well for for that kid no it sure but, doesn't but um uh, i i really like the that that frog i mean it's kind of a neat design you know but also it uh sort of made me think of like the old cartoons or whatever when like an angel and a devil appear on somebody's shoulders totally and, yeah, yeah yeah but you know it's just the devil <laughs> right absolutely yeah. so it's, willie evans jr this child actually appeared once before in mm-hmm. Fantastic Four number 203, and he created um, an evil version of the Fantastic Four. So I haven't read that issue. I've read that issue 
like years ago, but I don't even remember it. So I'd have to go back and, and check it out. But these are the only two times that yeah. this kid has appeared and he doesn't come back. Yeah. See if he still has the frog there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Shield shows up. Uh, Nick Fury, I mean, just briefly. Um, I, I like these little brief uh, appearances by Shield. Shield comes up again a little bit later on in this book as well. Um, and they yeah. just they just pop up and they take care of things and then they go away. It's kind of funny. Right. That's how government agencies should be, right? <laughs> I guess so, yeah. <laughs> the next issue is X-Factor Annual uh, Number 1. It Basically, X-Factor becomes spies in this issue. <laughs> and they, they go to Russia. Well, first they're contacted by a uh, Russian group to ask about how they deal with the the mutant problem so then x-factor they head over to russia to see about that they uh come across a like a prison specifically for mutants where one character uh is experimenting on them and he uh is a character called doppelganger and he switch places with switches places with Iceman for a, a bit as the X-Factor is going to the compound to try and rescue all the mutants there. You know, it's the, the fake Iceman. Uh, but the real Iceman meets up with the Russian underground uh, mutant group. I don't know if they're called anything, but uh, and they have a big fight and you know they take down, take down the bad guy, Doctor Heinrich, who is also doppelganger. First of all, let's mention that this is actually not Russia; it's the USSR. At this oh, point that, in history, that is true. In yes. the eighties, yeah, it's still the, it's still the USSR because we, and it's still the the Cold War. Um, it right. hasn't. This era hasn't quite ended yet. Cold War era, which is why they're treating uh, Russians kind of unfavorably here. Uh, it's they're still not really allies. I don't know if they ever really get to be allies after this, but they're they're still very much seen as um, as opponents to the United States. Uh, and Crimson Dynamo makes a, an appearance here. If you have a Russian story, oh, yes. you kind of have to have Crimson, Crimson Dynamo show up. <laughs> right, right, um, yeah. And, uh, mm -hmm. Especially since, you know, this one was written and drawn by Bob Layton, who, you know, of had course. a major run on, on Iron Man. So. Yep, yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I liked this one, especially because it was drawn by Layton. I feel like we get his full... Um, the full deal here. Like, right. It's it's really interesting to see when artists or when writers who are also artists uh, in in Marvel comics are writing and illustrating their same thing. Um, that that's not uncommon in like independent books and that kind of thing to have a writer artist doing this all of the work. But in Marvel comics, when you have this, uh, you know, the uh, kind of the factory element to how they produce comics, um, it's it, it doesn't come up that much. So I thought this was great to see Bob illustrating his own work. I you mentioned that this was they turned into spies and they really play that up. I really like oh, yes. the, the espionage aspect in it and how they break into teams and they have their own methods of getting into the building and sneaking around. Um, my only thing is that once they do break into the building in their own methods, they just end up in the same place. 
at, at the same time. <laughs> so it was they really had no point in breaking up into different groups except to show off their powers a little bit. That yeah, that each one can can do something different. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I liked Jean's unique use of her powers, lifting up the the fencing and all that kind of stuff. When the the uh, underground mutants show up with the real Iceman, uh, there was one panel that I thought was was pretty funny with the the tiger guy, Siberian tiger, Siberian tiger. Okay, yeah. oh, he says time to Rick and Row, and then one of his his buddies like that's rock and roll he's like oh english is a real pain <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's nice that they don't they don't all speak english because why would you if you're in, in in another country you don't necessarily speak english yeah absolutely um, yeah let's let's break down these guys for a bit here um the okay um the underground russians here blind faith is the leader he's like a priest mm -hmm. mutant who can uh, i guess hypnotize and control people yeah, which is definitely playing on the whole sort of televangelism, you know, <laughs> a, um, aspect there, <laughs> and right, <laughs> yeah, and then there's also Mentac, the living computer, uh, concussion. He's the guy. I think he can, can make like earthquakes and that kind of stuff. Uh huh. Um, and there's Iron Curtain and Siberian Tiger. So, right. And Siberian <laughs> Tiger looks like a tiger he's the only one that really kind of looks like a mutant out of all of them the rest of them are human looking they're yeah they're just just guys yeah and so i was interested do any of these guys ever appear ever again the answer mm -hmm. is yes most of them actually die in a comic i've never heard of before it's called soviet super soldiers number one from november 1992 <laughs> i Never heard of that either. Never heard of it before, but it makes me want to try and track it down. Yeah. <laughs> and I can't, okay. I don't think there will ever be a place for it in any Epic Collection series. <laughs> so who knows if it'll ever show up in some sort of right. Marvel Rarities book, perhaps. Right. It, it was really fun to see Iceman versus Iceman. Yes. You know, because there really aren't too many other ice powered people. So. Yeah, so it's just kind of fun to see. Those kind of battles are always fun, too. It's like the, which is the real one kind of right, kind right. Of battle. In uh, one of those articles you sent me the link for, I think they mentioned how Doppelganger was supposed to be the main villain for X-Factor. Bob Layton was setting him up here to become the, the master the master villain, like, behind everything. I mean, different from what... Uh, is going to happen with with apocalypse in the, in the next issue right right yeah. but yes yeah but i mean that that was originally supposed to be the owl in issue five but then later on doppelganger was going to reappear and and be sort of one of their main guys yeah yeah well yeah. that sure didn't happen <laughs> that did not happen at all yeah <laughs> yeah yeah are you ready to move on to the next one 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 thing i, I should say uh I how I originally read this was in the essentials, uh, and the annual is in a different spot in the in essential okay. <laughs> book. Yeah, it's uh, I think it is after number seven, issue seven. Oh, not that it really makes a huge amount of difference. I guess it because seven kind of leads into eight 
quite a bit. So I guess that's why they moved it up. But so anyways, I guess it's a natural break right where the story is here um, because they sort of ended the storyline and then the two that putting two annuals together before they they jump into the whole Alliance of Evil storyline that that definitely continues through the next few issues. Uh, That makes sense. And then there is a break before issue nine um with because they have that spider-man issue in there as well is the spider-man issue in the essentials uh the spider-man is not and and neither is uh the iron man annual um so you say that they put it before issue nine it is no it would have to be before issue eight yeah it's it's right between issues seven and eight okay so that's where the spider-man issue is yeah yeah i could see them putting it there two because they finished with one story and they haven't moved on to the freedom force story yet however my only issue with putting that after issue seven is that we leave issue seven on a cliffhanger with scott and gene about to hash it out about about madeline yeah and then they go on a big trip to the ussr for who knows how long and don't talk about it Right. Um, and then they, so it, it, there's probably no real good place to put the annuals, but I feel like this one is as good a place as any, how they put it in yeah. the, in the Epic collection here. Right. And, and where they have it, issue four is the last issue written by, by Bob Layton. I mean, the next one is plotted by him, but. Okay. Yeah. So I guess that makes sense to put it here as well to keep the, keep all of his yeah, stuff together. His stuff. Right. Yep. That makes sense too. Well, yeah. speaking of this next issue. Uh, let's move right on ahead to issue number five called Tapped Out. And this is X-Factor versus the Alliance of Evil. We meet the other members um, that are working with Tower and Frenzy. And they have kidnapped a guy named Michael Nolans. And X-Factor is hired to find him. Find Michael Nolans. Um, oh, sorry, my mistake. Michael Nolans um, is in hiding and both X-Factor and the um, Alliance of Evil are trying to find him at the same time. Right. And they end up finding him at exactly the same time in his apartment and have a big fight, and X-Factor loses this battle, which is nice to see that they actually don't win every one of them. Yeah, and they they lose kind of kind of badly, <laughs> Yeah, I think. Yeah, they but. do. Um, so the other two members of the Alliance of Evil that we meet here are Time Shadow and Stinger. And uh, I don't know really anything about these guys except for what we see in this book here. Again, with like just like Tower, I don't know if they just kind of disappear into obscurity. At the beginning of this issue, the, where all the X-Factor team is, they're training, and then... You know, uh, Iceman freezes Beast Beast's uh, feet. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's it's just kind of fun playing around, lighthearted type thing before everything turns horribly later <laughs> later on in the issue. Well, and I so. think this scene had such a very distinct Stanley Jack Kirby. You know, the er- early Werner oh, yeah. Roth kind of days. It's like they're just fighting in the danger room. Everyone's making right. jokes, and they're all there, and and it had. Again, because Layton really wanted to bring this the old '60s X-Men back, like that scene right there of them working out is so classic original X-Men. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the, the only thing that's different is uh, 
you don't have Professor X telling them, okay, now now you jump here or, or whatever. Right, there's no lasers shooting out of the walls or anything like that. True, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think the only real thing to note otherwise in this issue is the very last panel. Like you mentioned, it was supposed to be the owl. And I have a little excerpt of Louise Simonson talking about this a little bit. So this can be our lead in into issue number six. Um, okay. Louise says, this is from Comic Creators on X-Men. Layton decided to leave the book, and I honestly do not know why. I don't know if it was his, Shooter's, or Bob Harris's choice. Bob asked me to take over the book, and I think it was partly because Chris Claremont was my friend. I think someone finally realized that splitting up the X-Men and fostering a hostile relationship between the creators was a really bad idea. I believe I was brought on, at least in part because everyone knew that I could and would work with Chris. I want to mention that at the very back of the Epic Collection, there's an article from the Rise of Apocalypse trade paperback, and it says, It was decided that the misfit mutant team was in need of a major villain to round out the dynamics of the fledgling title. The editor-in-chief, that's Jim Shooter, wanted to spotlight the owl, feeling that this classic character had never really had its moment in the sun. Having made its debut in Daredevil, the Owl had already been established as a heavy, but one that was capable of going head-to-toe with, um, with only non-superpowered champions. The idea was part of a scheme to revamp the Owl, at least presenting him as a foe capable of holding his own against such staples of the pantheon of Marvel heroes as the Fantastic Four and the Avengers, or in this case, X-Factor. And then Louise Simonson says, My feeling was that the Owl didn't have the stature to be a major foe for a major team. There was a setup panel at the end of X-Factor number 5, and we needed to show a villain in it. I tried to think really fast, what kind of character would be an appropriate foe? I wanted a character who would try to force mutants and humanity to the next level. I thought Apocalypse was a good name for a character. Jackson Geist designed him, and he did a really good job. It was just a throwaway thing for him because I think he had also been planning on getting off the book, if I remember right, which he which he had. He only lasted. He only stayed on for a couple more issues after Bob left. Right. And then, going back to that Rise of Apocalypse article in the Epic Collection, it says the shadowy figure at the end of X Factor Five was originally drawn as the Owl. A quick few art corrections and some additions to his gauntlets and the book's direction changed its creative course. A new villain was on the rise. There we go. That is the a little bit about the creation of Apocalypse. And why don't we go into X-Factor number six from here? X-Factor six. Uh, and, of course, the title of the issue is Apocalypse Now. How could it be anything else? Exactly. <laughs> uh, it seems like they use that quite often when Apocalypse shows up. But... <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> Picking up from, from the last issue, at a, in a hotel room where the stuff went down and the room is practically destroyed, cops show up, the, the team wakes up and they make a giant ice sculpture to leave, I mean, after arguing for a little bit, then just by, basically by happenstance, they're out in the middle of, of nowhere and Angel sees an explosion from uh what's her name stinger <laughs> right yeah cuz uh the the guy that they w that they were fighting over is 
his mutant power is to augment, you know, make really strong other mutant powers. And it went out of control. There's an explosion. Angel sees it, and that's how they find Apocalypse. And then the rest of the, the issue is basically just a, a, a big fight. <laughs> and at, at the end of the fight, the... Uh, is his name Mike? Yep. I don't think I wrote it down. Yeah. Yeah, he dies along with his uh, his wife or his fiance or or just a girlfriend. Uh, wife. Wife. Okay. I think ex-wife yeah. actually. I think she ex- left him because he right. was that's he he was addicted to heroin. Right. Um. He, he Michael Nolan's is actually a pretty interesting character because mm-hmm. when he's on heroin he's not in the headspace to actually use his powers properly. They, they, they nullify his powers. And so he willingly is an addict so that he is, because he's constantly being used by bad mutants to make them more powerful. And his power is like a drug to them. Uh, so he augments someone's powers and they get high on that feeling of being more powerful and want another go once it wears off. And so it's, it's just a really interesting take on on a mutant power and what a person will do um, to control themselves. In this case, it's purposely get addicted to heroin. And Apocalypse wants to use his power to take over the world, basically. And I guess he wants to make all mutants stronger, or maybe maybe not. Or what does he say? Uh, make some stronger while cutting out the weak. Yeah, that's always been yeah. his thing, is survival of the fittest and and right. um, that kind of thing. And uh, it's nice to see that that was his thing right from the very start and mm-hmm. that his design is, is pretty solid right from the very start as well. They, he hasn't really changed his look a whole lot over the years. He's been refined by yeah. some artists here and there, but generally sure. speaking, yeah. it looks he it's... looks really good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah especially for... Uh, thrown away design yeah, no kidding it's just a rush <laughs> job that's just amazing um, yeah we you can note also that uh louise simonson is is uh credited as simonson in this issue but then louise jones in the next issue which is her maiden name and then it goes back to simonson the issue after that so i'm not sure exactly why <laughs> there she i think she might have recently been married at this point so Whoever oh, okay. wasn't really paying paying attention to what her what her name should be. Yeah. Uh, on page number two hundred and ninety eight, um, there's just a little throwaway panel of Cyclops shooting his beam at Apocalypse, and a ch- a hole opens up in Apocalypse's <laughs> chest to let the beam through, so he doesn't get hurt. And I had no idea. I don't really know what Apocalypse's powers are. He just kind of does things as he needs to as the situation comes up i've always felt that apocalypse's power is sort of ill-defined but (laughs) yeah it's just whatever happens to he happens to need at at that whatever moment yeah um okay so the other thing i wanted to mention also is that when um when michael augments everybody's powers all at once gene gray gets like a fire around her and then later Cyclops says that the fire looked like a phoenix, but it really doesn't look like a phoenix in any of the pictures that I've seen. I tried looking for it, and there's no phoenix on there. So I wish that um, 
that Jackson guys could have made that a little bit more obvious so that it because it just seems like Cyclops is grasping at straws because it doesn't really look like that to me. Yeah, it didn't even like occur to me <laughs> the the this time when I read it, it was I had to I had to when Cyclops mentions that I had to go back and look and it's like, yeah. oh, exactly. Okay. Me too. Me too. Yeah, because that that one panel where the the fire appears, it uh, Jean's fighting the stinger. You know the stinger. Yeah. <laughs> oh, these name these names of these characters are not sticking with me for no. some reason. <laughs> well, they're not memorable characters. Right. Right. But but um, it doesn't even look like a fire. Like it, it looks just like yeah. an aura around her. And that's yeah. it. Yeah. Too subtle. <laughs> yeah. I guess. Okay. X Factor number seven. This one here is um, is called Fallout. And it's called Fallout for a couple of reasons. Um, one is because of, uh, of course, the mutants that they have, that they meet in here are sort of radioactive. So it's referring to radioactive Fallout. But then it's just Fallout from... Um, kind of a lot of different things that have been going on over the past while. Um, I guess the X Factor, the humans, have to appear with X Factor, the mutants, and they have to have a battle. They have to kind of stage something to show that they are not the same people because people are starting to put things together. And at one point at the very beginning of the issue, Cyclops ac- accidentally calls Gene Maddie, which is like every. Every guy's worst nightmare is like calling out the name of your <laughs> of another woman, right? Right. Yeah. Um, but so that uh, that happens here, so we have to deal with a little bit of fallout from that as well, um, which Cyclops tries his best to shrug off and ignore and push off as long as he can, um, but that just makes Gene angrier. So the two the two mutants we meet are Glowworm and Bulk. And they are Morlocks, and they just go up to the surface to try and look for some stuff, but get seen, and um, and have to retreat. But then they they make their way up to the surface because they they want to uh, take down X Factor because they blame them for a bunch of stuff. Um, so this is also where the Beast yells out, um, "We want to exterminate X Factor!" And then Trish Tilby, news reporter calls this team of mutants the Exterminators. And then they right. kind of keep that name for a little while. And there's even a miniseries that comes up a little while later called the Exterminators. With uh, with Bulk and Glowworm, I, I really liked how he, the, the big one, Bulk, finds the mouse and the Glowworm says, you can't keep it, you'll kill it. And that's right out of, of Mice and Men. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I want to pet it and love it. <laughs> I'm glad that we are finally moving forward. I felt that I think that Louise Simonson coming on, she all of a sudden just wants to, she takes the plots and is just going to move things forward now. It's like we've been, we've been carrying on with this Madeline stuff and the X Factor exterminator stuff for far too long. Let's actually make some progress now. Um, yeah. So she just gets the ball rolling on all of these issues, and things start to pick up a little bit. I thought um, I think the book gets better once she takes over as writer. Uh, you know, not to say that Layton's stuff was bad; it's just that her stuff feels much more in line with what was going on with the 
the X-Men, Uncanny X-Men at, at the time. You know, I mean, just more so like in the style of it and yeah, more so than, than Layton's was. So. Yeah, well, in, in this era of the X-Books, it's really just Claremont and Louise Simonson writing all of them because Simonson takes on New Mutants as well. Right, and yeah, then, and, and then... And Claremont's yeah. writing X-Men and writing Wolverine uh, when when Wolverine starts out and and um, and writing Excalibur. And so it's really, you do have that cohesive feel yeah. because yeah. They, they talk and they work together and yeah so it's nice stuff i I, mm-hmm. I like her writing when they have to x factor and the exterminators have to face off like they get rusty in an x factor suit uh Cameron Hodge and uh Vera you know to to be like the x factor people and I don't know it's it's, it's fun the the fight or non fight i guess with Jean just sort of using her powers to make it look like the X Factor really has anti mutant guns or whatever it is. But yeah, it was a really good ruse. I like that a lot. Yeah, yeah. All right, moving on. Amazing Spider Man number two eighty two. It's called the Fury of X Factor, and basically all the the story we need to know is, uh, I guess for our purposes, is. Uh, J. Jonah Jameson hires X Factor to take down Spider Man. Yeah, this. Um, yeah, there are a lot of other things that are going on, but they're not relevant to the to the X Factor portion of the story at all. Um, right. But I like finally the fact that someone's bringing up that these other superheroes that are running around, no one really knows anything. They could very well be mutants. Spider Man. Right. No one knows how Spider Man got his powers. He just has powers. He could have been born with them. Avengers, and there's the one cop that's like, I don't trust the Avengers uh, because they could be mutants as well, which is just, it's, you know, it's a kind of a racist thing to say because he's he's just generalizing uh, the, the group of superheroes based on his own fears and, and bigotry. But it's, uh, yeah, it's just a good conversation, a good thing to to discuss in the pages of these comics, because X-Men has always been that allegory for racism. At, at the end of the issue, when X-Factor returned the money to, uh, to Jonah and said, oh, we can't, we can't accept the assignment because Spider-Man is not a mutant. And, I don't know, Jonah's, like, just gets mad about it, but... <laughs> right. So you mentioned earlier that this issue is not in the essentials x-factor essentials nope and um i i just remembered that this epic collection was not originally scheduled as an an epic collection it was just a regular release of apocalypse like the beginning of apocalypse right Um, to to tie in with the the movie exactly yeah yeah and and then they announced that it was going to be the start of an X Factor epic collection. And I think they added in these issues, like this one, the Iron Man annual. Um, they added those in in order to just pad out the book uh, because mm-hmm. it wasn't really epic sized. So this one doesn't really need to be in this collection, but right. I, but I'm glad it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah it's a, it, it is a fun story. Uh, 
you know, from the, the legendary Tom DeFalco. <laughs> yes. Um, so it was this point in the book where I started getting pretty tired with the why are we X Factor conversation that these characters are always having. And I yeah. know I know that it's like it's still a new book and people are just discovering it. So you kind of need to have that in every issue because you don't know which issue people are jumping on with at the beginning here. Right. But it's and especially when, since this is not even the X Factor proper, like people people need to know who X Factor is who are only reading Spider-Man comics. But in this big collection reading them all together like this, it's like, "Oh man, they're having this conversation again." <laughs> yeah. You know, things like that you kind of almost wish they would edit out. <laughs> yeah. You know, for but but if it's you just, do that yeah. then No, you, yeah, I don't I don't want them do to edit it out, but it's just right. um it shows how different writing for a serial um, publication is is different than writing for a full-fledged graphic novel and that kind of stuff. I, I feel yes. like the writing in Marvel Comics today isn't even... It's not that repetitive. It's not as repetitive as this is. Because I think they have more of a graphic novel mindset in mind when they're crafting their you know six-issue arcs and such. Yeah, they, they seem to be more writing for the trade, you know. Moving on, we're coming to X-Factor number eight. This one's called Lost and Found... And the premise is pretty simple. It's just Freedom Force is after Rusty Collins. And I think yep. the important thing to know is who is Freedom Force. And uh, Freedom mm. Force in this issue is Mystique, Blob, Avalanche, Pyro, Spiral, Destiny, and Spider-Woman. It's kind of a weird group of people here. Yeah. And they used to be the Bro Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Which is why, like, Mystique, Blob, Avalanche, Pyro, those are all Brotherhood of Evil Mutants people. But then you have, like, Spiral and Destiny are in there, and they're kind of odd. And and But so I guess what happened in a previous issue is that uh, Val Cooper, or in a previous story, Val Cooper of S.H.I.E.L.D., um, no, sorry, of the federal government, um, yeah. offered to wipe their slate clean if they agreed to work for the federal government and do missions for them and be good guys essentially and and but with the caveat that if they stepped out of line you know they'd be arrested and their criminal record would would be there to to help with the prosecution and i guess one of their previous missions spider woman got involved and joined the team so she's there mm -hmm. um but it's just a it's an odd group of people i mean sort of like a the Suicide Squad. Yeah, I guess I can see the similarities there. Yep. The the one especially that sticks out is uh, the Spider Woman. But I guess she didn't have her own book at the time. She had just right. been created not too not too many years before this because she was she came out in the Secret Wars. That's where she was created. And oh um, right, yeah, because this isn't the the original Spider Woman. No, no, this is the Julia Carpenter Spider Woman. And yeah, um, okay. and so yeah, she she hasn't been around very long, and so I guess they were trying to figure out a place for her to appear on a regular basis, and this is what they came up with at the time. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, they actually Freedom Force actually plays a big role in X Factor's future because they eventually, in, in a in a way, like Mystique joins X Factor 
like X Factor kind of falls under Val Cooper's jurisdiction, right? Yes, the the this version of the Freedom Force dissolves at a certain point, and then the the next team of X Factor uh, with Havoc, uh, Polaris, Multiple Man, Strong Guy, Quicksilver, and Wolvesbane. They're under Val Cooper working for the government, basically in that same type of role. Yeah. Like the the, mut- the the government's mutant team is is what it is. Yeah, and then yeah, and then much later, uh, Mystique joins the team, and you know all kinds of crazy stuff happens. But yeah. <laughs> on page three hundred and fifty-eight, there's a reference to Uncanny X-Men number two hundred nine, um, and they don't give any specifics, but it's actually the X-Men and the Hellfire Club who are fighting in Central Park against uh, against each other, but also against Nimrod, who's showed up. Right, and uh, isn't Nimrod like the Sentinel from the future? Yes, is yes. that what that is? Okay, right. <laughs> it's it's interesting, you know, because this story, this issue leads into the next, which leads into the the mutant massacre crossover, but it's not really a crossover between X Men and X Factor. They're just stories happening at the same time, parallel to each other, but the right. teams never meet. Oh yeah, yeah. They make a reference to mutants, di- uh, Morlocks dying and stuff in this one, in this issue, right? They, so yeah, this is they the, do. This is the beginning to the mutant the, massacre. Basically, do you have anything else on this issue? Or um, yeah, I just wanted to quickly mention yeah. um, that we finally, at the beginning of this one, um, Scott and Jean finally talk oh. about Madeline Pryor. Like we've been waiting for this. It took eight issues plus a couple of annuals and a guest appearance in Spider-Man, but we finally got to this point where they're they're actually talking about it and it is kind of an awkward conversation as you can imagine um but jean (laughs) jean is trying her hardest to to put a a good face on and be understanding of this whole situation um which is very big of her yeah especially because scott is just being like he's still being a I, i don't even know what's a good word to describe him, but he's, he's just not, he's totally indecisive and yeah, he's just a I jerk. <laughs> he's yeah. He's a total jerk here. And Jean calls him out on it. Um, in this one, in this conversation as well. And she says, you know, you have a wife and a child. How could you just walk out on them? It's like, she w- desperately wants to be with him as well, but understands mm-hmm. that dude, you're married. You can't just do this. <laughs> so, right. Right, yeah. Yeah, and and not only married, you're a father now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It so I'm glad yeah. that she and, she said that. Um Yeah. Yep, it was a good. Yeah. It turned out well. Yeah. I mean not well for them. I mean she stormed off it's, and they're not talking to each other, but I thought the resolution right, was right, fine. Yeah. <laughs> well, well for the book. <laughs> well for the book. Well for us the yeah. reader. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, maybe this uh a conversation like this could have happened in issue 3, let's say, but <laughs> still it was it was good yeah and if if cyclops had come in had come clean right in the first issue right away um right. she wouldn't have had the same sort of response the response that she had was because he kept it a secret for so long and wouldn't tell her even though like she had to figure it out herself yeah so yeah you want to carry us into the final issue here x factor 9 okay so uh 9 x factor 9 is a just a continuation of what's going on in, in issue eight. Uh, 
and basically the 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 search uh, freedom forces search for Rusty takes them down into the sewers where uh, at, at the end of the issue destiny who's sees uh, possibilities for the future says if we don't leave now we're all going to die <laughs> and you know sort of and that leads in to the, the mutant massacre story which will be in X Factor Volume 2 but I uh, should also say I guess in the last issue uh, a a Morlock uh, named Skids meets up with uh, with Rusty and and they sort of hit it off, I guess. I mean, uh, become friends and they're running around together. Yeah. She saves him a couple of times. And yeah, skids is actually pretty cool. I didn't, I mean, I was aware of her existence, but I didn't really know much about her, but she's actually got a kind of a cool power. Yeah. The, uh, like the protective force field. Yeah. The slippery (laughs) protective force field. Nothing like you can't even hold on to her because she'll just slip right out. (laughs) So it's kind of funny, (laughs) but it's, uh, and she, she hides with the Morlocks, even though she looks like a normal person. Yeah, uh, she has a line somewhere uh, about how the, I, I guess the the Morlocks. There's one of them whose mutant power is making everyone else look ugly, <laughs> but that doesn't affect her because of her force field. Um, this issue also features uh, the the dramatic first meeting between Artie and Leech who become best oh, friends for the rest of their lives here. They they are such a great duo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's nice to see that um, creators have just left them alone. They just let them exist. They're together, and they don't need anybody else. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's just really nice to see. So I'm glad. I'm, I mean, I haven't read modern comics, so I wouldn't be surprised to hear that, you know, Leech is dead now or something, but I'm glad yeah, to... <laughs> I'm glad that they're... Yeah, I like. I'm glad to see this first appearance because I don't think I've ever read this before. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a couple lines that I want to note in here. Blob makes the 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 point that um, he says, "Isn't this interesting? Um, the Freedom Force are now the good guys, and you X Men are now perceived as the bad guys. Um, so yeah. it's just you have the the reversal. Um, but they, but." we are still rooting for X factor through all of this, even though they are technically the bad guys in the public yeah. eye. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then destiny has a line saying, so Cyclops has turned evil. And it's like, that's definitely a foreshadow, an unintentional foreshadow for the rest of Cyclops's life. I mean, even though that storyline wouldn't happen for another 20 years or so, but, but still, <laughs> but as we mentioned, it was, um, this is just the beginning of this path that sends him down. I mean, right. His downward spiral. But I mean, yeah, he's not evil, evil here, but eventually he makes decisions that send him down a different path. Mm -hmm. Um, In the previous issue at the very end, it, the, it says next issue, Magneto and big red letters. (laughs) <laughs> plus right. X Factors all out fight with Freedom Force but Magneto is Magneto he's going to be in the next issue and I was like it, okay Magneto what it, it, like what three panels <laughs> three panels and he doesn't talk to them and he doesn't do well, anything and he's not in costume thanks for that teaser that was real uh, real nice of you yeah <laughs> <laughs> right yeah he he's just says one word Scott <laughs> and then runs into the building 
and, and they, and they don't talk yeah. to him and it's like it's inconsequential that Paige doesn't even need to be there but uh, they really wanted to play up the fact that Magneto's going to be in this issue. Yep. <laughs> so there we go. That, those That's where our collection ends with the regular issues. Um, mm-hmm. And um, and then, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing Volume 2. Let's see where this all goes. But before we call it a day here on the podcast, we have a couple of issues, a couple of stories from Classic X-Men number 8 and number 43. They're just backup stories because classic X-Men was uh, it was like a reprint series, right? Yeah. Um, and they would insert a few pages here and there of new art and new stuff to expand on the story. Is that right? Am I remembering that correctly? Um, yes, they, they did that uh, for, I want to say the first 45 issues or, or something, you know, and classic x-men number one starts with the the giant size x-men okay you know so it's from there till uh whenever but uh yeah and and every issue did have a few pages wonder what like eight pages or something of, of new new material yeah sometimes it would like expand something that happened in that issue other times it would just be like a little story with some of the characters somewhere else. Well, in classic X-Men number eight, we get um, a story of Jean's death on the shuttle. This is the moment when the the Phoenix manifests itself as Jean Grey and, and kind of takes over her. And mm-hmm. this was, I was not expecting this at all. This like you, she basically dies of radiation from the sun and you see her it, rapidly decaying through the story. Uh, and it's kind of brutal. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> and and then the, the the Phoenix Force just when it first shows up, it's just a beam of light, yep. basically. Yeah, and it becomes more and more formed as she decays more and more. It's like the yeah, yeah the life transference kind of going from one body to the next. And right. um and yeah, so this one. This one expands even more on the rewritten pages in that Fantastic Four issue. Right. Where, um, because remember, we were talking about John Byrne's original pages show that Phoenix took over Gene by force and was was evil right from the get-go. But this one shows a very different conversation of, yeah. of uh, reasoning and how Gene Grey can be saved um even though her body is dying yeah and and then the the phoenix you know puts gene's body in the cocoon and yes yeah to uh i guess heal heal her so this was uh i think it was x-men uncanny uncanny x-men number 100 where the issue ended you know with the shuttle crashing to earth so yeah. i think this happens right they put this on the end of that. Ah. Yeah. Yep, that would make sense. So in classic X-Men number 43, Flights of Angels, it's um, this one is kind of a confusing story a little bit. I wasn't sure exactly what to make of it. Um, yeah. Jean Grey pops up somewhere on this planet where uh, this one guy is just building a structure, and she realizes later on that this person is death. And it's basically just her having a conversation about death and about her place in 
in in the 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 larger picture and the the grand thing and this is a story of the dark phoenix after the dark mm-hmm. phoenix has quote unquote killed itself and committed suicide right. uh what happens to the phoenix force after so i think it's just expanding a little bit more on again showing that the phoenix was originally um gene's essence that kind of went out of control and um and then her humanity was the reason why um the phoenix force was stopped in the first place and then um and then we have this conversation here so it uh if you haven't really read a lot of the x-men issues that lead up to this then i felt like this is kind of out of place i think i would have rather seen classic x-men number 43 here this story in an epic collection like an um the x-men epic collection that would relate to this a little bit more right the with the the dark phoenix right uh, because yeah. this book isn't dealing with the the phoenix the dark phoenix it's only dealing with gene gray so the first classic x-men story makes sense to be in here but this one yeah. isn't even the real gene gray um it's it's the it's the phoenix force right but anyway yeah. it was okay yeah yeah it was fine well one thing i i did really really like about it so when phoenix first shows up her costume is uh, uh green and yellow and then in the x-men stories she's you know uh becomes bad and her costume turns into uh red and uh, uh i don't remember what the other color was it's, but it's red and yellow yeah red and yellow still yeah okay and and then in this story it's uh pure white yes so it's, yes it's like um it's like a rebirth kind of she's now she 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 died and she's come back but she's pure i guess rid herself yeah. of the evil parts and uh i think that's sort of what it's supposed to symbolize yeah well there we go um the bonus stuff in the back here we have an issue of marvel age number 33 um, it's just a, a promo piece for the upcoming book where they talk to a bunch of the creators. It's fun because a lot of the stuff has been redacted. So we got big black marks throughout the the articles. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that's fun. And um, and I feel like they're trying to keep Jean Grey a secret through this, except it's painfully obvious even through the images that they show and, and stuff like that. Like, of course, it's Jean Grey. Right. Like the, uh, the little cover they they reprint of the the fantastic four <laughs> yeah you know <laughs> it even says like a phoenix right on the cover there so exactly it's like, yeah it's like okay we'll we'll try but uh we're not gonna try very hard <laughs> yeah. uh, we also get an article from marvel age number 37 of le- letters from people who are trying to guess who the, the fifth member of x factor is going to be and a two-page cartoon from fred hembeck which is always fun i like his work mm-hmm and then, like I said, a couple of articles from previous trade paperbacks, um, the original art, and uh, some unused art and covers. There's there's a lot of great backup material in this book, in this volume. So, yeah. Um, overall, my impressions of this is that um, I was expecting the worst, and I didn't get the worst. It was it certainly had its issues. But overall, like I said, I like the X-Factor premise and I like Bob Layton's writing and Jackson Geis's art. So it's a, 
it, it was it was fine. I think it was a fine journey, a fine read through, and uh, um, you can tell at times that things have been rushed or changed on the fly. Um, but knowing the background history, I can forgive that because they were doing the best that they could under circumstances, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, because they did the first issue during a hurricane, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and like you said, once Louise Simonson comes in, things start flowing a little bit uh, more quickly, which I appreciate, and uh, and I can't wait to see what she's going to do, especially when her husband Walt comes on board as the artist. I think that's going to be quite special. I haven't read any of those issues. Did uh, ending ending the volume where, where it did, did that work for you i mean because it does sort of end on a cliffhanger yeah it's not a really big cliffhanger um yeah i i found it was fine they what was nice is that they've included enough in this compilation to deal with the gene gray madeline Pryor story Mm -hmm. um and then because i think that was the overarching thread through this it's like gene gray comes back they need to have that conversation and the volume finally ends with that conversation uh that that to me was a full story that that's that's the arc right there and and same with rusty's arc from going from the beginning from just meeting him being totally afraid of his own powers to being a confident full-fledged kind of adult i guess um going out and and help being a helpful member of x-factor so his his arc was kind of formed here so i feel like it was a good place to stop especially if the next issues start with crossovers and stuff like that i think that that's that it it's good to stop before we get into that right on well you know um i didn't mention this at the beginning but if you want to get a, a in contact with us you can visit us on our website epicmarvelpodcast.com or head to facebook or twitter to see us there uh, just search for epic marvel podcast and um send us an email at epicmarvelpodcast dot or at gmail.com um, and, uh, yeah, if you want to support us on Patreon, you can do that as well. And you can get some exclusive interviews, which I'll be, uh, pumping some more of those out pretty soon. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's lots of stuff to, to see up there. And Jared, the next time we are going to be talking, the next episode that you will be on, I think we're going to dive into, um, Second Genesis, X-Men, right. X-Men Epic Collection, Volume 5 doing second genesis after the third genesis right yeah yeah actually it would be (laughs) it'll be a nice follow-up because we'll go back to those issues that we talked about in this issue in this episode quite a bit and you know with with talking about volume five uh that also has len ween's contribution to to x-men and he as we record this he passed away a few days ago yeah and yeah um and he he had a you know a tremendous effect on on all of comic books but especially x-men because x-men had been was dead it had been canceled and he was the guy who decided to bring it back and you know he created wolverine uh or co-created i should say wolverine storm uh colossus nightcrawler and you know and it started this tremendous run of x-men that has been going on ever since really and just you know it's sad to whenever somebody that you admire passes away yeah between his writing for various companies and his editing 
you'd be hard pressed to find a character in Marvel and DC that Len Wein hasn't affected in some way. Um, there are obvious ones like the Hulk, like Swamp Thing, like Wolverine, but then there are just there like he 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 had his hand on on so many. He just was guiding creators and people as an editor and shaping things so much. And uh, and the Marvel universe isn't it wouldn't be what it is today without Len Wein. And it is incredibly sad to see him go. Um, before his time, he was never a really healthy person. Um, and it's uh, in some ways it's amazing that he lasted this long. But yeah, he uh, it was quite sad news when I read that when I read that yeah. he passed away. Yeah, yeah. It, it his was a name that you you always saw in the credits of you know of the of comic books. <laughs> yeah, growing up, you know, I, yeah, uh, and it, I should say that he uh, he didn't have anything to do with with uh, this X Factor Volume One because uh, he was too busy working over at DC and he was editing Watchmen the time oh, this was coming out. So, right. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah. Make, making a, a bigger impact somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, rest in right. peace, Len Wein. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining me today, Jared, and we will see you on the next show. All right. Sounds good. Talk to you again later. Bye.